You're listening to Driven by Insight. Join Willie Walker, Walker and Dunlop's chairman and CEO, as we bring you fresh perspectives about leadership, business, the economy, and commercial real estate. Willie hosts a diverse network of leaders as they share wisdom that cuts across industry lines. His guests are experts in their fields. From leading economists and CEOs to Harvard and Yale professors and everything in between. Our one goal is simple, providing you with unique insights, unparalleled data, and real-time market analyses. It is an incredible pleasure for me to have Jamie come on the stage. I'm trying to stall here because I don't really know where this conversation is going to go. And I control the dialogue now. And in about 30 seconds, you're going to see I lose complete control of it. But Jamie, please come join me. Everyone, good morning. This isn't intimidating at all. At all. Wow. So you go big, Willie. Yeah. Except, can we just discuss what's your like market cap thing? What's your like? It's a big number, right? Can yeah. Just give it. Throw it out. I don't honestly know what it is. Yours, just some big number. No, I I, I don't know where it is today, but it's it's it, somewhere. Give me a ballpark. It's somewhere between three and five billion dollars. Three point two. And this is what they give you. (laughs) Now, let me just say, if you guys come to my house for anything, I'm going to feed you and give you something more than a peppermint. (laughs) Sorry. So now you all see why I was trying to buy time before she came onto the stage. So, Jamie... As an aside, back up to 2010, and I'm on my IPO roadshow, and you say, are you going to Kansas City? And I say, I am going to Kansas City. And you say, would you go meet with my money manager and pitch Walker and Dunlop to him? He runs a very successful mutual fund called Buffalo Funds. I go in. I don't impress him. (laughs) He decides he doesn't want to invest in Walker and Dunlop, to which you say, I'm going to invest a million dollars in Walker and Dunlop's IPO. How'd that turn out for you? Pretty darn well. (laughs) Pretty darn well. Um, Just so you know, I'm an actress. I'm not a businesswoman, although I was raised by a businessman, a Marine, ex-Marine named Bob Brandt, who brought me and my mother to Sun Valley, Idaho, when I was a kid, I was telling some of your um, their guests, their guests and clients and friends, friends. I mean, you know, yeah. I was telling some of your friends about how moving it was for me to walk around here earlier because I was a little early. And Sun Valley was invented for families. You didn't need to rent a car. You would come here, and I'm telling you, from the age of seven on, I was alone from seven thirty in the morning until seven at night. We would go by ourselves to Dollar Mountain on a ski bus. We would come back, change our clothes, go to the pool, go to the bowling alley, you know, charge dinner. And then we had to be back in our room by 7.30. This is an idyllic place for you to bring people. I'm sure you guys are getting that feeling. Come back here with your families. It's really special. And I spent my life growing up here. Anyway, I was raised by a businessman, but I'm not a businesswoman. The only thing I've ever learned is save every penny you've ever made, and I've done so. Other than that, my stepfather, Bob Brandt, you know, was a 
ex-Marine and a self-made man. He started a business in the fourth market with a business friend of his, where literally they had two card tables, rotary phones and telephone books for every major city. And they started a company now, and this is way pre-internet, where they would call First Bank of Boston and go, hi, this is Robert Brandt, First uh, Brandt Zwick and Company. We are dealing in institutional trading, big block trading. Are you looking to buy or sell any big blocks? And then you go, okay, great. And they'd go onto a board and write, First Bank of Boston wants to buy 50,000 shares of IBM. And then, as you can guess, later somebody's saying they're selling 50,000 shares of IBM. And they would call them, make a match, take a percentage. And that's how he made his money. Two card tables, rotary phones, telephone books, made a lot of money. But you've told me before that you used to see Bob when he would go to conferences and he would go through. Oh, you know, go. oh but no, no, you're right. Can, yeah, I'll let you talk. It's okay. <laughs> no, 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 because you remind yeah. me of him. Ah, you haven't said that before. Oh, you remind me of him. Why uh, do you think I like you so much? Yeah, right, you know. All right, but go to your thing about Bob. So Bob Brandt was married to Janet Lee, my mother. My mother was a very famous woman, gorgeous I'm sure some of you know. You know what? Weirdly enough, many of you younger people probably don't know her. She was the woman who starred in the movie Psycho. She was this gorgeous, gorgeous woman and a beautiful person. And she married a businessman. And they would go to these business conferences where Brant Zwick and company would go to Boston and have a dinner. And my mother and father would travel with flashcards and... They would memorize every member of the family of the person. So if it was the Walkers and he was going to run into Willie Walker, they would write Willie Walker, parents, Mallory Walker, Diana Walker, children, um, Charlie, Jack, and Wyatt Walker. And then when Willie Walker would walk into the conference room, Janet Lee would see his name on a shirt and go, Willie. How's Diana? Tell me, where are Wyatt, Jack, and Charlie in school? And all of these business people would be so shocked that Janet Lee, this famous movie star, knew their wives' names, their parents' names, their children's names, what school they went to, Gonzaga. Like, and I learned that from him. I am that person in my life. I immediately go and meet someone I met a woman here today. We start, where are, are, are you here? I know you were with some, no, you were someone's old miss. Whose child goes to old miss? They, they laughed. Wow. I guess I didn't make much of an impression. Yeah, I was going to say, God. but um, that's who I am. There is I immediately here, want to know. Who you are, where you're from. I met a Marine. Where's my Marine? Yeah. Right in the back, because he heard me talking about being raised by a Marine. That's who I am. Like all of the, the fluffy parts of me, <laughs> and I have fluffy parts. The thing that you need to know is I was raised by a Marine, and he taught me to, that your handshake is your signature, that you look someone in the eye, and that you keep your word. But on that, Jamie, I mean, you've got 4.5 million Instagram followers. Yeah. And I don't don't go, you know, I want to get down to why it is and how it is that you live the life that you live, because it's always inbound at you. 
There's always people who want to come talk to you. They want to meet with you. They want to take a selfie, what have you. And you are one of the most generous people I know as it relates to understanding other people and what's important in their lives. And obviously, there's a limit to the ecosystem of friends that you are capable of doing that on. But all of us have limits on the ecosystem. But you have that incredible sense of giving. Did that come from Janet? Did that come from Bob or somewhere else? I think it came. I think that's a great point. I think it came from both of them. I think it was that interesting combo platter of Janet Lee, who came from nothing, nothing, Merced, California, poor young people. My mother was discovered by Norma Shearer, the movie star, the silent film star, was staying at a, she was married to a skier, a man named Marty Aroger, and they were staying at a motel in Big Bear, California, and my grandfather was the night manager and he had a picture of my mother on his desk. And when Norma Shear was checking out, she said, who's that? And he said, my daughter. And she said, oh, she's lovely. May I have that photograph? And she took it to Hollywood and they called Janet Lee. And Janet Lee was brought to Hollywood and screen tested for who today would be Tom Cruise. It was Van Johnson back in the day, big movie star. And she got the lead in a movie opposite Tom Cruise and changed her name and became Janet Lee. So my mother came from nothing. And I think the combination of that, marrying a businessman who is is you, he was an athlete, family man, dedicated to his family, brilliant in business. And I think the combination of that. You can keep going. Oh, I don't need, you know, you so, know. All right. All but right. my point is, so, I think the combo platter of them, and my mother was charitable. My mother worked very hard for charities. And I, all I want is for people to relate, Willie. The truth of the matter is, you talk about social media, which is a poison for young people, by the way. It's a poison. It's deadly for young people. For me, I use it to sell things. But ultimately, no, hey, what else are we doing on the internet? What else is it for? To tell you who I am, my feelings, whatever? No. I want you to relate to me as a person. That's my goal in my life. I don't care if you like a movie I'm in, don't like a movie I'm in. If I have to believe that you see me and what I stand for, you relate to. And I hope you relate to it in a positive way. And if you relate to it in a negative way, that's okay. This is America. That's the goal of America is you're allowed to have your opinion of me, but I stand for something. And I think the social media has to be about standing for something, whether or not people like people, I'll have people call me. I don't know. It doesn't matter. There were some hearings yesterday. They were interesting. People were very forthcoming. There were some amazing photographs. Your great mother was. You're about to call her my great grandmother, but that's okay. Thank you, Willie. (laughs) She is one of my best. I've said your great mother is a great photojournalist, and there are great photojournalists working today. And yesterday were some great images. Frank Thorpe. And I posted them. I will have friends call me and they'll go, oh, hi. I'll say, hi, how are you doing? What do you mean? I'm great. Oh, you didn't look. 
I didn't look where. Oh, you didn't read the comments. Comments? What are you talking about? And of course, I'm getting trolled by people who disagree with me, which is the American way. You can disagree with me. I don't care. Here's my goal for social media. Don't read the comments. <laughs> Period. Say what you mean. Mean what you say. Don't say it mean. And then get the fuck out. <laughs> and let them all freak out. So, so you're talking about your mom and you and your mom. My great mom. You and your mom did one. You and your mom did one movie together, The Fog. Oh, Willie! Right? Oh, yes. How was it acting with your mom? I, you know, honestly, it was sweet. People loved having her there. It's not different than when people talk to you about your dad, right? And the company he built, right? That's how it feels to be the daughter of someone. You, you are the son. There they are. Yeah. They're watching. Your dad gave you your opening. Like, you know how it feels. You have great pride. You feel daunted by the legacy. And then you need to get stuff done. Right. And in a modern way. And that's what you're doing. And that's what I'm doing. And I, I honor my parents. But I honor them by trying to be the best. Per- you know, that's all we're here for. To try yep. to be the best people we are. But there are plenty of people who grew up in obscurity and became famous. And then there are people who were born into stardom and yeah. became obscure. You are somebody who was born into stardom and have came, maintained it throughout your career. I'm very that's, lucky. That's unique. Yes, very unique. Here's what I will tell you. I was raised by two very, very popular movie stars. Not raised by, by the way, I wasn't raised by my father, but he was a very, very popular movie star. Fame, it's not unlike sports. Who here has seen that championship season? Who here was a great high school or college uh, sports star? A lot. And you spend the rest of your life remembering what it was like to be a great high school or college sports star. When you're famous and you become famous in the movies for whatever reason, we have no idea why people become famous. People like something. There's a chemistry, a moment in time where something catches and then all of a sudden, you're the thing, and you're, it's like, woo! The saddest thing is when you don't get to do it anymore. You know, fame doesn't disappear. Fame stays with you. But what made you famous goes away. And I watched my parents both lose the very thing that made them famous, the art. They didn't get to be in the movies anymore. They didn't get to do that job. You're going to get to do this job. Your dad retired at some point way late in his life. You're going to have the same thing. You're not going to get kicked out, we hope. We hope. Um, (laughs) But my point is, in show business, you don't determine it. They just don't call you anymore. And it's heartbreaking. And so I have always been with one foot out of show what I call show-off business. I've had one foot out because I don't want to be asked to leave. If I'm going to leave, I'm going to leave before you ask me. That's who I am. And so I've, I've dealt with that on both sides. And yet at the same time, this is my Beatles birthday year. I'm going to be 64 years old this year. And I am busier, more successful, more relevant, more in my own mind and in my own spirit and in my own knowing what, in fact, I need to do in this world before I die than I have ever been 
and I am 64 years old, and I started when I was 19 years old. Who knows how that happened? But I mean, it is a miracle, and it is rare. It is very rare, and it was very sad for me to watch. You know the Paul Simon song, You Can Call Me Al, and there's that line, I don't want to end up a cartoon in a cartoon graveyard. I don't want to end up a cartoon in a cartoon graveyard. I want to die alive. My, my new book, my self-help book that I'm writing and announcing here at the Walker Dunlop conference. I told you you're going to break news. Has no words to the book. It just has a great title. <laughs> you haven't heard the title yet. Live like you're dead and die alive. I mean, live like you're dead, meaning be generous like you're going to be when you're dead. We all have our estate planning, all of us. Even if you're just starting out in life, you're already starting to think about estate planning. I have wealth. I've built wealth. I've saved every penny I've ever made. I'm the idiot savant of real estate. You think I'm lying. My husband and I bought five acres of land north of Ketchum, Idaho for $180,000 in 1984 on our honeymoon. We used every penny that we had saved and built a log cabin for nothing. And we ended up buying the land to our left and right. And now people look at us like I have, excuse my French, TV money. TV money is that kind of money that you hear people make. I don't make TV money. I make movie money. I work hard for it. TV money is that crazy money. People think we have TV money because of where we live. Anyway, Here's the book title. Oh, I told you the book title. So yeah. we're done. All right. <laughs> so, but my point is give your money away when you're alive. Don't wait till you're dead. Enjoy that and die alive. Die alive. Do not die dead. Dying dead is that you've lost life before you've lost life. And how many of us know people who've lost that spark of living? And I don't want to die dead. I want to die fully alive, fully in my mind, fully in my body, fully in my need to try to make this world, my part in it, manifest my destiny so that I can leave a little bit of goodness in the world before I go. So all of the rest of it, the show-off business part of it, which is interesting to some people, and I'm happy to answer anything, but the truth of the matter is that's not why I'm here. And it's not why you're here, Willie. It's not why you decided to take over your dad's business and change it and shape it and lead it into a new time. So. Right? Correct. (laughs) I told you this was going to go the other way. Well, no, Uh, but I mean, I'm telling you. No, 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 no. So here we go. Um, Let's be alive here today. I want to stay on these real issues, but I do also want to touch a little bit on the career because there are certain pieces to it. I know, I know. It's all fine. So all of your movies, if you add the box office up, is over $2.3 billion of box office sales. Not too bad. Not too bad. (laughs) And I only know this number because I went with Jason Blum, who runs Blumhouse, who should be one of your speakers one year because of, I sent you his Vassar commencement address. He's a really interesting young entrepreneur who started a company, Blumhouse. Uh, They did Get Out and they've, he's a fantastic guy, but he and I spoke at the Milken, global Milken conference 
the 25th anniversary of the Global Milken Conference a month ago. Right. And the moderator opened her thing saying how much money the movies that I've been, it's not like I walk around with a t-shirt on going like three, whatever billion dollars. That's just not, but I just found it, it was interesting and I knew it was a business conference. You guys are business people. You're in the business. The business. The business. All right. So when you started out, all right, your mom was in Psycho and then your big first role was in Halloween. Yes. And it was only because you got fired from Operation Petticoat that you were able to actually do Halloween. Yes. So for anybody here who has ever been fired and thought it was the end of your life, it isn't. Um, I was fired from a show, it's boring, but along with other people. And had I not been fired from a show that then got canceled a month later, I would never have been able to audition for a movie that turned out to change my life. Just so you know, Halloween, I was paid $8,000, $2,000 a week for four weeks. And the movie was made in 17 days and it was made for $300,000 total. And it ended up becoming successful, very successful, independent film. And then over the years, I've now made a bunch of those movies, ending with a big finale this October called (laughs) Halloween Ends, which is the end of this current trilogy of films, which are wildly successful. And I am what they call a final girl. I was the OG final girl, Laurie Strode. And this last movie is a movie about Laurie Strode finally taking on her nemesis, Michael Myers, in a sort of battle to the death, and it's intense and spectacular. Is there anything fundamentally different between making a horror film and making a non-horror film like Trading Places or True Lies or other action films that you've been in? None. Zero. It's stickier. Blood is sticky. Fake blood is really sticky. The truth of the matter is it's just a dark emotional place that you have to live in for a long time. And I'm sort of done. (laughs) As you can tell, if you've spent now 15 minutes with me, I am not a dark person. I wake up like this. You can only imagine my poor husband. (laughs) You can only imagine. And my husband is the smartest dude, wickedly talented, a great outdoor, wonderful guy, and silent so you can only imagine what it's like to wake up with me for two seconds. Talk about Chris. And those of you who don't know, Jamie's husband is Christopher Guest, former Saturday Night Live star, the maker of Best in Show. And this is Spinal Tap came out in the 1980s, 1987. No, no. All right, tell me, tell Sorry. me how far Sorry. off from 1987 I am. Three years. No. Three years. 1985. 1984. Four. Seven. <laughs> By the way, this is a business conference. I got the fucking math right. So. Come on. Jesus, Willie. Wow, and I've so never seen him blush. My. <laughs> My, I dare say. my CFO, my, my CFO, my old CFO, Steve Theobald, as well as my new CFO, CFO, Greg Florkowski are both in their room and they said, that's exactly right, right there. That, okay. That seven minus three is perfect. 
my husband, my now husband, my first husband, I was in 1984, was in a movie called Spinal Tap, which I'm sure some of you have seen. If not, it's a classic. It's called This is Spinal Tap. It's about a fake rock and roll band, English rock and roll, heavy metal band, doing a tour. But I was single, and I was sitting in my house in April 1984, and I was looking through Rolling Stone magazine, and I was flipping the pages, and I flipped a page, and I swear he was wearing your shirt. There was a picture of these three guys who are the stars of the movie Spinal Tap, but not as the characters, as themselves. Nice. And they were all wearing shirt sleeves, rolled up a couple times, checkered shirt, and they had their arms around each other, the way you guys do that. And I said to my girlfriend, Deborah Hill, who was sitting next to me, I said, oh, I'm going to marry that guy right there. She said, which one? I said, the one right there on the outside, him. She said, oh, he's an actor. I tried to put him in a movie once. His name is Chris Guest. I was like, oh, I'm going to marry him. She said, oh, he's with your agents. I was like, oh, interesting. And then I turned the page, and then it was a picture of them in their Spinal Tap outfits. True story. The next day, I love you, Willie. The next day, I called his agent. And the guy picked up the phone. He said, hi, Jamie. I know all about it. Chris Guest. I was like, what? No. Oh, ew. Deborah Hill had called him and said that Jamie thought he was cute. And I said, look, I'm not a stalker. I'm single. I think the guy's cute. Here's my number, Ugh, and hung up. He never called. And there was a guy who was a painter, wanted to date me. I started to date him. He was older, lovely guy. I wasn't that into it, but I was into it. You know what I mean? And <laughs> he was way into it. And he wanted me to go to Hawaii where he painted. And I said, no, you know, a couple months. We, I was like, no, you go to Hawaii. I'm going to get ready and do that movie perfect. I played an aerobics instructor. Um, with, with John and, Travolta. With John Travolta in August. This was June. I said, no, I have to get, I have to look good in a leotard. I have to do a lot of, <laughs> um, and I took him to the airport and I dropped him at the curb, kissed him at the curb, said goodbye. He left. I went and picked up Melanie Griffith and her then husband, Stephen Bauer in West Hollywood. We went to a restaurant called Hugo's right down the street from where we both used to, I lived in West Hollywood. And I sat down and two tables facing me, as far away as you are, was Chris sitting at a table. And he looked at me and he went like this. <laughs> and I, sitting there looking at him, went like this. And then I did this. Oh, my God. There's this guy. I called him and I left my number. And I, oh, my, I'm so embarrassed. Oh, my God. And he got up to leave. Five minutes later, he stood at the table and he went like this. Didn't come over. And I sat at the table and I went. And he left. But he called me the next day. That was June 28th. We went out July 2nd on a date. We went to Chianti Restaurant in Hollywood. And I had a Caesar salad because that's all I was eating because I had to be in a leotard for three months. And he was leaving to go do Saturday Night Live for a year. August 8th is when he was leaving. This was July 2nd. We fell in love. He left to go to New York. We bent back and forth every weekend. I think September 13th or something, we got engaged with this very ring. He came back. He gave me a ring. I was like, what's that? He, was, he could, couldn't speak. <laughs> he was sweet. He just, he, he's not that guy. 
And he finally said, well, I, I was hoping maybe we could get married. It was like, okay. Anyway, we got, mar- we got engaged September 13th, and we got married December 18th that year, 38 years ago this year. So I'm telling you, go after what you want, people. Life is short, and if you see something that you want, say it. Say what you mean. Say it. If I hadn't said that, my life would never be the life I have today. That's exactly what I wanted you to say. It's a great story. My story. It's a great story. So other than Chris, who is the leading man in your life, you've also had lots of other leading men in roles of films that you've done. So look at you. John Travolta, Mel Gibson. John Travolta, who, by the way, if you saw the Oscars this last year, I was there as a presenter. I presented the Betty White tribute, beautiful Betty White. But I brought out a little rescue dog. I don't know if anybody's watched. You guys are business people. Why would you watch the Oscars? But I brought out because Betty White was a, a rescue advocate. And I brought out a little rescue puppy that I brought out to say this little rescue puppy needs a home to the world, to the billion of people watching. I was like, I hope someone will rescue this little dog in honor of Betty White. John Travolta backstage, who I hadn't seen in 25 years, we reconnected. John Travolta adopted that dog with his son, Ben. You know, they lost Kelly Preston, his wife, two years ago yesterday. Mm. And he flew home. He himself flew the jet home to Florida with that little rescue puppy. It was so sweet to run into him again. Such a beautiful man. So John Travolta, Mel Gibson, Arnold Schwarzenegger. Keep them coming. John Cleese. Keep them coming. Eddie Murphy. Yeah, baby. Dan Aykroyd. Oh, yeah. Dan Aykroyd. Who is the most Dan fun? Aykroyd. Who is the fun, Who's fun Dan Aykroyd. Dan Aykroyd. <laughs> Dan Aykroyd. I got to tell you something. Dan Aykroyd. <laughs> you know, in the movies, you have to kiss people. It's a horrible job. <laughs> It's a horrible job when you have to kiss people you don't want to kiss. You know, it's a horrible job when you have to kiss people that really, you really don't want to have to kiss. It's a really good job (laughs) when you kiss people who you have absolutely all thrill in the world to kiss them because it's legal. You know, we call in recovery, we would call that a free lapse. Um, uh, uh, in marriage, I think it's called, uh, your job. No, I mean, you know. Well, it's my job, but yeah. isn't there like a, that thing where it's and like you get a hall say, pass. Hall pass. Right. So I got a lot of hall passes with Dan Aykroyd. Talk about a, just a sweet and a great businessman. Great businessman. He picked me up when we were shooting trading places in New York. He picked me up. And he and John Belushi owned the, something called the Blues Bar. Thank yeah. you. They had a bar that they bought because they couldn't go to bars. How could they go to a bar? Because they would just get inundated by people. So they started buying real estate. When he was driving me down, he kept going, I own that. I own that. I own that. John and I bought that. That whole corner we bought. I mean, he was a businessman. I loved it. And then from there, it was to John Cleese in A Fish Called Wanda. Yeah. He wrote that yes. film thinking you were going to be in it, did he He not? wrote that film for me to be in it, which was weird because I, of course, thought that John Cleese and Michael Palin wanted Chris Getz. Right. Like when I got a call that John Cleese wanted to talk to me, I was like, I'm assuming so that 
I'll introduce him to Chris because Spinal Tap had come out. Anyway, yeah, I don't know. He liked me. He wrote me this part. It was a great experience. Annie was six months old, went to London. So then you did a TV show called Anything oh, But Love. Willie. But yes. you loved doing that. I well, love doing a sitcom. Why was that? Yeah, talk I'm, about that. That is the job I am looking for. Right now I have a big hit movie out that Mallory Walker and Diana Walker said was the worst movie they have ever seen. Is that everything, everywhere, uh, all at once? Some artists here just clapped. Yeah. From behind the camera, I got a this. There is a movie out right now. You can stream it. It's called Everything, Everywhere, All at Once. It's a multiverse comedy Interesting, crazy, beautiful movie about love starring Michelle Yeoh, the action star. I have a supporting part of a IRS auditor named Deirdre Bobirdra, who starts out her nemesis and becomes her lover. It's super interesting and fun and is a massive hit around the world, much to the chagrin and dismay of Mallory Walker. <laughs> and my attorney... Who hated that movie? Go back to Anything But Love and why you loved doing Anything But Love. So I'm going to tell you. So I have a hit movie there. I'm, uh, Halloween is going to be a monster. No, 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 no. I have that. a reason. And you to... won a Golden Globe for Anything But Love. I won a Golden love. Globes yeah. for things. My point is, with all of the jobs that I did, the best job I ever had was a sitcom. I loved it. Like, you can tell. I loved it. You have an audience. You get to do funny stuff. You get to work on it and hone it and then do it each week. I loved it. And I've never done another sitcom. I did it once. It was successful. I loved it. And so the only job I've told my agents that I want to do is a sitcom in Los Angeles, where I don't have to leave my husband, where I don't have to leave my children and my pets. And, you know, that's all I do. I travel all over the world. I just came from Savannah, Georgia, where we shot the last Halloween movie. And I'm done. I don't want to travel anymore. I want to do a sitcom. Willie, make it happen. <laughs> Come on, Willie. So you then went to True Lies, oh my which God. James Cameron did. I'd forgotten James that James Cameron, Cameron did James Cameron also it. wrote that movie for Yeah, me. for you. Yes. And, and was it always that Arnold was going to co-star in it with you? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. I got a call from James Cameron because who gets a call from James Cameron? Because I'm not that person. I don't get a call from James Cameron. The phone rang. Hello. Hi, Jamie. It's James Cameron. <laughs> Oh, hi, James. What's up? Hey, um, I've written a movie for you and Arnold Schwarzenegger. I would like you to read it, but I can't send you the script because it's embargoed. You know, it's precious. So I'm going to have somebody come to your house. They'll sit in the driveway while you read it, and then I'll, you'll give them back the script, which I did. We ended up making True Lies. It was fantastic. It was a great, 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 great experience for me. It's when I met your mom. Why is James Cameron so good at what he does? He is a unique talent. And he, you just said, you know, when James Cameron calls and says, hey, it's Jim Cameron. Yeah. And you're like, yeah, right. Why is he so good? You know, that's a good question. I, that's the alchemy of things. He is, by the way, Jim Cameron can do every single job on a movie except acting, which is why actors love working for Jim Cameron and crew people don't. Because Jim can do every job that a crew person can do. Jim is an artist. He can do the art direction. He invents cameras. He invented the handheld device that allows you to see what a movie camera sees, but you can walk around with it on your iPhone. Jim invented that. Jim is a technical wizard. He can do every single job in the movies except acting. 
which is why he loves actors. So for an actor to work with Jim, it's like saying it's the one thing he can't do. And he gives you full freedom. I don't know if you've seen True Lies lately. It is fabulous. And it was an incredible opportunity for me because I just was as loose as a goose. I just had the most fun because Jim just let me go. And you'd known Arnold quite well prior to that. Is there something about how? No, no you hadn't. I knew Arnold from here. Right. Here's what was hard. You see, Arnold didn't want me. And now we're friends. And, you know, Arnold didn't want me because Arnold Schwarzenegger only knew me from up here. Yeah. Maria Shriver, the Kennedys, these were all people I grew up with. And Arnold and Maria lived up here. We lived up here. He would see me in restaurants. He knew me as Tony and Janet's daughter. Because what you don't know is that Arnold Schwarzenegger directed a movie one time. Who starred in Arnold Schwarzenegger's movie? His idol, Tony Curtis. Huh. So the one movie that Arnold Schwarzenegger directed was a TV movie called Christmas in Connecticut or something. And Tony Curtis and Diane Cannon starred in it. So I knew Arnold that way. Right. I never knew him as a colleague. And I'm younger. And I'm sure he just thought I was sort of Tony and Janet's snappy little loudmouth daughter and didn't look at me as a leading lady. And Jim Cameron was the one who said, no, 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 no. She's the one who's going to be in this movie with you. And it turned out to be the best pairing that Arnold Schwarzenegger ever had. And the best pairing that I've ever had. It's a fantastic movie. It's a domestic epic. If you haven't seen it recently, it's maybe a good thing to watch on the plane home. Does it? But on that. No, it's a great movie. No, and I dance around in my underwear and it's really cute. But on that, like. <laughs> I will tell you this. I will tell you this. I was up here in Sun Valley, Idaho in August when I got the call that I was going to for sure do the movie. And. The first call I made was to the production manager, the person like your team who put the whole thing together. And I said to him, hi, it's Jamie Curtis. Apparently, I'm going to play Helen Tasker. When is the hotel scene in the schedule? Because it was like a four or five month schedule. And he said the second week of September. And this was like August 10th. So I called him. Then I called the production designer. Remember how I walked in here and said I would get no light here? Yeah. Right? Well, I'm a woman. We need light. We need light. Luckily, I'm getting a nice little bounce from the sun bouncing on the edge of the tent, which is helping, which will make the video not something that I have to burn. But I called, I called the production designer, and I said, you know, there's a scene where she gets interrogated, and it's written that it's like a jail cell with a light above her head. And it's eight to 10 pages of dialogue. And I said, that's never going to fly. I need some light on my face. So I need you to build in some light in the room somewhere. And if you watch, so when you watch True Lies again, and Helen is in the interrogation room, you will notice that there is a big square light around the glass window that Arnold and Tom Arnold are sitting behind. And the reason that big light box is there is because I called the production designer and said I needed light on my face if it's going to shoot eight. But anyway, it was, I'm telling you, they said it was the second week of the schedule. Can you imagine? So I didn't eat for, you know. (laughs) 
it was like this many people and you're dancing around. Does that impact you? <laughs> yes. It does? Well, it was intense. I mean, it was fun. I mean, do you, when you go on set and you got to do a scene like that? I mean, it was fun. I will tell you there was no rehearsal. Right. There was no choreographer. Jim said, what music do you want? I said, I like John Hyatt. He said, okay. There's a song, Alone in the Dark. He said, great. I like that song. And, then, and he said, so what are you going to do? I said, well, I, I don't know. <laughs> I don't really know, but I'll get into it a little bit. And then the only thing I knew I needed to do was get to the bedpost and go backwards so that the microphone would fall out. So then she had to get the microphone and put it back. That was the only thing that they knew. And it was just dollies and cameras. The first shot was big wide shot. This many people probably on the crew there that day. I think there were a lot of guys who had jobs that weren't really supposed to be there, but they were walking around <laughs> with like a screwdriver in their hand going like. <laughs> um, and then I literally closed my eyes there. And, and here's, oh, oh no, I'll tell you this because we have to wrap this up. No, we don't. We really do, Willie. No, we don't. No, it's we really good. do. I have a I'm therapy call. I'm looking at the faces call. in front of me and I don't have to wrap this up. But I have a therapy call in yeah. like half an hour. Right. This isn't as good as a therapy call. I love this. No. No, sorry. I like y'all. You're lovely people. Here's what happened. So we did that big wide shot with me doing my thing. And I remember like we finished it. She went over the edge, the thing, thing. Then, you know, and then there was like that moment. And then it was like cut. And then it was sort of dead silent. And I could see a lot of guys wouldn't look me in the eye. (laughs) You know, a lot of people were like looking down. And Jim came in and was like, oh, my goodness me, because they had never seen if I could dance. They didn't know anything. Jim didn't know what I was going to look like in my underwear. He didn't know I could dance. He didn't know anything. He just knew I was supposed to dance. So we did it again. We did it again. We did it again. We did it now with Arnold sitting in the chair with the camera over Arnold to me, blah, 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 blah. And we keep doing it over and over. And finally, Jim Cameron walked up to me very privately in front of all the people. He walked up. He said, if I ask you to let go of the bedpost, are you okay to hit a crash pad on the ground? I was like, yeah. So they brought in a crash pad under the camera level. And I don't know if you remember the movie, but there's a moment where Helen's dancing and she's on the bedpost and then she lets go and falls, and Arnold Schwarzenegger has this amazing reaction to it, I'm going to tell all y'all that in all of the movies I have made, it is the single greatest laugh I will ever get anywhere in any movie. It was such an uproarious laugh in that moment, and here's what I learned. Jim Cameron understood that it was too sexy, that it was getting uncomfortably sexy. Because you have to remember, that was his wife. That he was making his wife do that. Arnold, that was his wife doing it. And he understood that it was almost a little icky. Because I could dance, and he didn't know I could dance. And so he understood that you needed to laugh again. And that's why, if you see it, we did it one, maybe two takes. When you see that movie again, it is a humongous laugh that Helen lets go of the bedpost. And it, it goes down. It really, really made me understand how much Jim understood right. what was going on. 
I think another director would have just let it be really sexy and then deal with the fact that it was a little icky later. And by adding that laugh in there, oh my goodness me, I was in a movie theater, packed movie theater for the premiere of that movie. Oh my God, these people lost their minds. They laughed so hard. So talking about you scandally clad and an icky scene, when my boys were... Uh When my boys were 13, 11, and 9, I dialed up Trading Places. <laughs> and I'm sitting there watching Trading Places yeah. with my boys. And as many of you may recall, Dan Aykroyd is in off the street to Ophelia, who is a prostitute in the movie. And Ophelia comes home, gives him the bed, gives him shelter, gives him warmth. And as she's getting undressed she takes off her bra and no, louie what's that her dress her dress and louie she didn't wear a bra sits there sees her in the mirror naked I and don't then think she prostitutes wear bras. she puts her hand on her breast and says no louie you're not getting any of that so here are my 13 9 and 11 year old boys who if it was anybody else on the face of the planet would have been riveted to the television screen and all of a sudden, they see Jamie's breasts in front of them, and all three of them, without missing, go, oh, Dad, God, <laughs> Jesus, please, no, turn that off. It's Jamie. Oh, that's just awful. Yeah. And it was how so long, good. Yeah. How it, long ago was that? It was six years ago. They're fine with it today. They are fine with it today. <laughs> Let like, me say this. They're like, dial it up, Dad. I have two last things to say before I leave, because I really do need to go. I want to tell you one thing that uh, you're blushing again. Yeah. Wow. You're really blushing, Willie Walker. Yeah, it's good. Wow. It's good. You may have exposed your children to seeing breasts for the first time, and they were mine. Isn't that yeah. amazing? <laughs> what an amazing idea. Um, so I will tell you that I do remember a friend of mine's, the father died, and I was friends with his wife and their teenagers. And I tried to be supportive and friend, you know, kind of show up for baseball games and stuff. And I went to this kid's baseball game, a big baseball player. And there was like some big game. And I think they won. And I showed up and blah, blah, blah. And as we were leaving the game, two guys walked by me. I was talking to, to Robert and two guys walked by and went, hey, freeze frame. And I was like, huh, what? What? And Robert was like, oh, I'm sorry. And then another guy walked by and was like, hey, freeze frame. And I was like, what? what's happening, Robert? And apparently, this was before, you know, phones and digital and all the rest of it, that boys used to put the movie on and then freeze frame that moment in the movie when Ophelia is naked and basically then have a party with me on their screen with a freeze frame, <laughs> uh, which... You know, I'm nice. Freeze frame. So here's what I want to leave y'all with. I I need to leave. I need to leave. But here's what I want to leave y'all with. And we we joke about this, and it's going to bring it back to Willie Walker and his great work and Mallory Walker and his great work. So I'm me. You guys now know me. You know me, right? I'm going to leave here. You're going to be like, I know her. No pretense. You know me. You may hate me, that's okay, America, but you know me. So I used to do a lot of public speaking. I also sold yogurt that makes you shit for seven years, but that's a whole other conversation. 
Um, but while I was trying to raise my children and not be going off to Budapest for four months on a movie, I did commercials. I did commercials with O.J. Simpson and Arnold Palmer for Hertz Rent-A-Car. Oh, yeah. I was the girl that they hired when the women started becoming business women. When you wonderful few women in here, um, <laughs> business women, sorry, you know, when that movie with Diane Keaton, where she was an executive and had a baby, baby boom. When that movie came out, they realized that women were in the, were in the marketplace now as business women, and they needed to hire a woman to run through airports and jump over suitcases. Who did they hire? Oh, that would be me. And I did commercials with O.J. Simpson and Arnold Palmer. You can find them on Google, where Arnold and O.J. were the sort of rube boob guys who were, like, not very smart. And I was the business executive who was very smart and knew everything. And I did two years of commercials. So I'd, I've done a lot of commercials. People have hired me to sell things for a long time. I'm a good saleswoman. No, I am. I'm what I like to refer to as a weapon of mass promotion. On Instagram, I'm just, I'm, you need something sold, I will sell it to you. Anyway, I also used to do public speaking, where I would go and do sort of my world according to Jamie, and it's good. It get deep. It makes, you know, it's good and funny and good. Anyway, and I was invited to the Ernst and Young Entrepreneurs of the Year Award keynote Sunday morning speaker. I didn't know shit about Ernst and Young or what they did. I knew nothing. It was they paid me a certain amount of money to come and do my 60 minutes of spiel. And I'm in a car driving to Palm Springs. It was in Palm Springs. And apparently, our friend here won that award. What year? 2011. 2011. I think this was before then. And I remember going there. And I remember going backstage during the morning presentation. I was sitting behind a lot of lights, all this business. And the guy before me was some businessman talking about business. And I'm sitting in the back going like, what the am I doing here? Oh, my God. All the guys looked like you, young man in the front in the pink. They all, all of them. I don't think there was a woman. I don't think there was a woman in the room. And I was the speaker before the golf. So, you know, everybody's thinking about the freaking golf. And they're all in their golf clothes. And they have to sit here through this keynote. And the minute it finishes, they all get to go play golf. So I'm sitting there at this thing. And I go out and they introduce me. And I walk out to a big room of people, mostly men, in golf clothes. And I didn't know what I was supposed to do. And I said, you know, everybody, I have no idea why I'm here. I don't even know if it's better to be in the red or the black. And from the back of the room, a guy shouted, if you're red, you're bleeding. And I was like, oh, thanks. Okay, so that's not good. They all looked at me stunned. Like, what were they going to have to listen to? And here's what I will tell you. By the end of it, they were crying. And what I said to them is, nobody gives a fuck how much money you have. Nobody cares about how you've invested and how big your company got. All they care about when you're dead is who you were. 
what kind of father you were, what kind of husband you were, what kind of ex-husband you were, what kind of son or daughter, what kind of human being you were. And the thing I know about you, Willie, and I know your parents, and I know who they are, and I know the struggles of their lives, and I know the struggles of your lives, and you know the struggles of mine, and I know the struggles of all of yours. Because nobody gets out alive, nobody gets through this life without struggle. But I will promise you, that the most important thing is who we are as human beings with other human beings, your employees. It's what you talked about, about your speaker, talking about it's not about him, it's about his team. It's about the people that put on this conference. It's about all the people that are back in your offices who are working on your behalf. That's what we're here for. The more we support them that make the world better for them, that's what's going to be remembered. They're going to remember who you are by what you do, by your esteemable actions and beauty. And with all the money in the world that is available and the strategizing about what's going to happen with the markets, and I understand it's a scary time for all of us. The thing to remember, and the only thing I hope I leave here, is that I'm a human being talking to another human being who I respect, who was raised by human beings I respect, and that we're all just trying to do something together here at the Walker Dunlop Conference, here in this moment, in this time in our lives. And I'm grateful to have been asked to come here today. I had no idea what I would say. <laughs> but ultimately, I know that. And that's what I said to those people at the Entrepreneur of the Year Awards. And you know what? They didn't just jump up and run out and play golf. They stuck around. We talked. It was beautiful. So God bless you all. Thank you for having me at the Walker Dunlop Conference. Appreciate it. Bye. Oh. I do want to mint. Thank you. Everybody, thank you, Jamie.